Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is Quinta Jurassic, the managing editor of the website Lawfare. She previously served as an editorial writer at the Washington Post. She has been following all the latest developments in Washington. This has been a wild, upsetting, and pretty topsy-turvy week in the legal and political worlds. Anthony Kennedy just announced his retirement literally minutes ago. Uh, and now we're, we're recording this uh, very timely. And the Supreme Court announced a number of big decisions in everything from abortion to union dues to most controversially the ability of people from several Muslim majority countries to travel to the United States. At the same time, a judge has demanded that the Trump administration reunite children who were separated from their parents after crossing the border. And all of these issues have raised larger questions about where the rule of law stands after 18 months of Donald Trump's presidency and how different courts are either resisting or deeming legal many of this administration's policies. Quinta joins me now to discuss all this from Washington. Hi, Quinta. How are you? Uh, you know, it's been a roller coaster of a day. Yeah, that's uh, it's a good euphemism. It's been uh, it's been something else. So I guess I guess we should start. um I guess we should start with Anthony Kennedy. What what is your what is your biggest takeaway from his retirement? Uh, I we haven't had much time to digest this, but but what what comes to mind? Yeah, I should say I think he announced his retirement about an hour ago, so I'm I'm very much still processing it. Um, I mean, look, everyone is right when they say that this is going to have a huge effect on the court going forward. Kennedy was the swing vote. He sort of intentionally fashioned himself as the swing vote. Um, and so there are a lot of cases where he might have voted with the more conservative block anyway. Um, and so bringing in a more conservative justice sort of perhaps in line with Neil Gorsuch may not have that much of a practical effect. But there are also a lot of areas in which Kennedy was a little more iconoclastic and did tend to side with the liberal block. Uh, personally, as soon as I saw he was retiring, my immediate thought was that I was worried about Roe v. Wade, um, that there are going to be a lot of test cases coming up if uh, Trump can get a justice confirmed where uh, conservative activists are going to be tr- going to be trying to overturn the right to an abortion. So John Roberts now, I think, assuming Trump's uh, replacement for Kennedy is more conservative than John Roberts, which given the list of 25 names that he's put out and now he's said that he's going to choose someone from that list seems pretty likely. That would mean that John Roberts would essentially be the swing vote on the court. Do we have some sense of where Roberts stands on on abortion broadly and Roe v. Wade specifically? I actually don't know. Um, that was um, as soon as I saw Kennedy was retiring and I thought, oh, no, there goes Roe v. Wade. My second thought was I need to look up where Roberts is on Roe and I haven't had a chance to do that. Um, I do think... What we've seen from Roberts recently is that he is someone who's very conservative but cares a lot about the institutional legitimacy of the court. Um, I think you saw that in his travel ban ruling. And so I think it will be very interested to see how he tries to guide the court forward in an increasingly political atmosphere while the court itself is becoming increasingly politicized. What about the, the, the ban ruling made you think that he cares about the way people view the court? Sure. So if you read his opinion, it's a really interesting piece of writing um, because it basically says, look, we know that Trump did this because of animus toward Muslims. There's an extensive record, but we're not going to consider that here. Um, And there's this fascinating little aside where he essentially says, you know, most presidents have used their position to speak to the American people on on a moral level. But some presidents have not risen up to that standard, which is a 
pretty obvious shot at Donald Trump. And then he goes on to say, but we have to consider the presidency as a whole rather than just this president, which seems to me to be his way of saying, look, you know, we're not going to be dragged down into the mud in Donald Trump. We're going to stay in the level of abstractions, you know, the Supreme Court as an institution dealing with the presidency as an institution. And we're going to take a step back and not incorporate all Trump's comments. Um, and so there's an obvious that leaves you with the obvious question, sort of how can you not incorporate Trump's comments? But I think it does point to Roberts's level of care in thinking about how institutions interact, even if it may lead to lead him to what I certainly would argue is the wrong decision. What did you make of the fact that Kennedy joined Roberts' decision in that 5-4 case, number one? And number two, what did, did, did you notice anything about Kennedy this year on the court that you thought was different from other years? Or, or I mean, I, I, was, I was slightly surprised. I mean, by the time the decision came out on the the travel ban case, I was not shocked because of the sort of hints he'd given at oral arguments. But it did seem like taking a step back, if you'd asked me five or 10 years ago, this would be something that I would have been certain Anthony Kennedy would not have voted to uphold. Yeah, it's I mean, Kennedy is very big on the First Amendment, you know, he's very big on religious liberty. Um, and yet he did side with the chief justice here. I've seen a lot of commenters note that Kennedy has actually sided with the conservatives more often than usual this term. I personally haven't run the numbers on it, so I can't speak to that. But I did think it was notable that he sided with Roberts. And particularly interesting was his – he had a two-page concurrence that essentially said, I recognize that Donald Trump is behaving badly – and the question of whether or not he is upholding his oath of office is not for me to judge as a member of the Supreme Court. But, you know, by gosh, isn't it important that he upholds that that oath, which I think a lot of people, including me, kind of read as throwing up his hands in a sense. To go back to the question about sort of how we would have thought about something like Trump's ban on seven countries, six of them uh, vast majority Muslim if it had happened in a previous time or a previous era or even even five years ago, is that, you know, correct me, I mean, you're the expert here, but it seems like they're broadly speaking, there are a couple different thoughts about the court. One is that you have these these members of the court who have their ideology and they the cases come before them and they determine based on whatever their reading of the law or their ideology is. And the second says that kind of they're human beings and they're very political and they change with the political winds. And I guess what I was struck by with the decision was was, again, it felt a little bit like the court was moving in step, or at least the conservative members were moving in step with the way the Republican Party has moved, where you've seen with a lot of Republican office holders who, when the Muslim ban was first proposed by President Trump and then a modified version of it was became law or became an executive order that they criticized it at first and then they slowly grew to accept it. And that sort of was my sense on a little bit what happened with the conservatives on the court. I, I mean, how does that fit into, do you think, broader ideas about how the court operates? Yeah. So I think, I mean, it's important to keep in mind here that while we've all been referring to this as the travel ban case, and I include myself there, this is the third iteration of the travel ban, right? Um, this is way, way, way watered down from um, – 
Trump's initial ban, much less the total and complete ban on Muslims entering the United States that he promised during the campaign. And so and that was what Roberts really stuck to was saying, look, you know, they went through an interagency process. DHS produced all these documents. We have an administrative record here. And if the court had ruled on the initial travel ban, as a lot of an lower courts did ruling aggressively against it, they wouldn't have had any of that record to consider. So while you're right, I think that there is an obvious political charge to how the conservative majority, including Neil Gorsuch, sided with the president here. I think it's also true that they sort of because they were able to wait it out for so long, they were able to let the fires cool a little bit. So it wasn't quite the confrontation that you might have seen if they had been forced to rule on the initial travel ban. And because of that, it meant that they were able to avoid confronting sort of the person of Donald Trump and how he's a very atypical president. Just to move on from the the band to something that a lot of people have compared it to, which is a U.S. judge in San Diego. This is now last night, I believe, Tuesday night, barred the separation of children and their parents. Um, the government was doing uh, illegal immigrants and their parents coming over the border and ordered them, th- those who have been separated, to be reunited. And so people have been comparing this to the travel ban case because we saw when after after various iterations of Trump's ban – once it came out, various federal judges would make these rulings that covered the whole country. And, you know, then eventually we see them work their way up. What did you think of the judge's decision and how much do you how how likely do you think it is to hold up? Yeah, I think first off, I would say I think the comparisons between the travel ban and the uh, family separations policy are very apt. I mean, they're they're both policies where the purpose really seems to be cruelty And the rollout is sort of inextricably entwined with just a deep incompetence and level of chaos. And so the sort of that, that and then the back and forth with the courts really do echo the travel ban. I think that my reaction as soon as I saw that ruling last night was sort of saying, you know, here we go again. This is going to be another round of judges ruling aggressively against Trump's order and the administration is going to go back and forth and they're going to water it down and we'll see where we end up. I will say that initial injunction did strike me as quite aggressive, um, particularly because of the legal reasoning. If you actually look at the opinion, the reasoning is basically that separating these children from their parents without going through any process violates the parents' due process rights under the Fifth Amendment. Um, And the reasoning there is that it – the legal term is it shocks the conscience, Um, that it's, it's essentially so outside the norm of government behavior that it cannot be constitutional. Now, that's kind of obviously a bit of a squishy standard. I know I am not optimistic about how it will hold up on appeal if it goes before a skeptical panel on, on appeal. Um, but, you know, we'll see. The ju- judges who ruled against the travel ban initially were a lot more aggressive than I would have anticipated. Right. I mean, I, I think the the optimistic case, optimistic if you are not in favor of uh, children being ripped away from their parents, is essentially that this order may help get parents reunited with their children. There are over 2,000 kids who are not who are now separate from their parents. And that if that happens, that even if the policy is even if the judge's ruling is overturned, we know that there is a seemingly large political cost 
to President Trump if he wanted to put this policy in place again, which was not the case with the travel ban, which was that there was maybe some political cost, but it was an issue that always kind of divided the country and certainly didn't seem to motivate people. Whereas putting this policy back and the president himself has signed an executive order, uh, the effects of which are unclear, but saying that, you know, people shouldn't be separated from their from their kids anymore. So it, it does seem like the the optimistic case would be that that this order, even if it gets overturned, will accomplish what it should accomplish. Yeah. I mean, if you look at it in a sort of in a very practical utilitarian way, I think you're absolutely right. Um, the judge, I think, gave 15 days, possibly a little more for children under five to be reunited and give a longer period for uh, older yeah, children to be reunited. I think it was 30 for the... Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There we go. You can tell it's been, kids, yeah. You can tell it's been a long day. <laughs> um, so if that accomplishes its purpose, I think that's great. I mean, there there is this question of... Are we seeing a norm in which judges are acting unusually aggressively against this president, right? And what does that mean for law as a whole, which I think is a very interesting question and one that is still very unsettled. And we may be about to see another round of conflict over it. Right. I think it was Jack Goldsmith who writes for Lawfare, the site that you're the managing editor of, who made the case a while back, I think near the beginning of the Trump presidency. Correct me if any of this is wrong, that essentially just because Trump is abnormal and may not uh, stick to various norms, that doesn't mean that judges and the people who want to hold him accountable should stop sticking to those norms, too, and that liberal or centrist or even conservative judges who want to rein him in in some way should be sure that their decisions are not kind of um, too radical or don't overstep their bounds. Is that more or less right the way I describe that? I think so, yeah. I think that... So Benjamin Wittes, who's the editor-in-chief of Lawfare, and I, right at the beginning of the presidency, wrote this piece about what what happens when we don't trust the president's oath of office. And our argument was that there's been an unspoken constitutional principle that a lot of the deference that the judiciary gives the executive branch, the leeway that it gives it to pursue policies, is based on a trust that the president is upholding his oath of office. And that now that Trump seems to not be and that he sort of seems to not understand what it would mean to, for example, take care that the laws be faithfully executed, um, that we're now in a circumstance in which we don't trust the president's oath of office. And that one of the effects of that might be that courts are going to develop a jurisprudence that is much less trusting of the president. And so, well, Jack made that argument, my the sort of counter argument, um, less normative than descriptive, would just be to say that we may be seeing a sort of a new strain of law developing in response to Trump. And how, well, I mean, just maybe say how you felt about that 18 months ago and how you feel about it today and if there's been any change one way or the other. Yeah, I, at first I was skeptical of the idea, I think. Um, I, along with many people, thought that, well, the courts had ruled aggressively against the first travel ban, against the second travel ban, once they sort of, you know, they went back, they had a, an actual lawyer read it over, they tied it a little more to uh, the national security rationale they were putting forward. I thought that that would be enough for the courts, and it wasn't. Um, it still got struck down quite aggressively by a sequence of lower court rulings. And at the time, my feeling was I recognize the concerns of the group of people who look at that and say, you know, judges are ruling against Trump just because he's Trump or 
judges are are going down to Trump's level. But I, it does seem to me that there is a sort of unspoken legal principle at work here. And I would say that now, looking back, I think I that seems right to me. Um, and I feel that even more strongly in the wake of the Supreme Court's travel ban decision, because what you see when you look at that is, frankly, Roberts may be right as a matter of technical law, but the moral absurdity of what he wrote, just the sheer vastness of the gap between the sort of abstract legal world that he's constructed and the real world in which we're living, where Donald Trump is the president, is so vast that it it just seems absurd. I mean, it's it's not credible. And so it seems to me that there must be a way in which this is incorporated into the law and if there's not, then that's a sign of the weakness of law as a whole. Yeah, um, it's. I mean, it's interesting. I don't. I don't really have a good question here, but it's. Uh, there are a lot of different institutions and fields, and I say this because I think media is one of them, which has sort of not been able, in large part, to get its head around the fact that the situation we're in is not normal, and that um, doesn't mean that we should necessarily start playing by different rules. But there's been trouble even trying to think about how we would, you know play by different rules and what that would mean. And um, that's uh, that's worrisome. Yeah. And I think the courts are in a particularly tight spot here, you know, because their whole point is to be sort of objective arbiters of what you should do. And so, I mean, journalism, there's always this question about, you know, what is objectivity and should journalists allow their own views to, you know, be present. But with the courts, that's really, really not something that's done. And so I think they find themselves in an even tighter spot. You wrote a piece about Trump and the pardon power recently, which I just read and uh, which uh, Trump has exercised a lot, the, the pardon power recently. And you said something about the president, which I thought was interesting. You said, quote, he's only too happy to wield absolute power, but tends to fold when that power turns out to be less than absolute. Absolute power is in quotation marks. Can you expand upon what you meant by that and your your larger point you were making about the president and the pardon power? Yeah, absolutely. So my point with the pardon power is that Trump wants to be a dictator. Um, and I don't actually think that that should be that controversial a statement. He's expressed his admiration for dictators. He talks about wanting to, you know, control the Department of Justice, jail his political opponents. But the thing is, while he talks a big game, he hasn't actually done any of those things. Right. He he hasn't ordered the prosecution of Hillary Clinton. He he fired James Comey. But then that's kind of been it. We know that he's tried to fire Mueller at least twice and both times he backed off. So it seems to me that he came into office thinking that this was going to be like being the king. And then when he receives pushback, he's kind of surprised and he doesn't actually push forward and try to muscle through that, you know, like with the travel ban ruling, for example, he went back to the drawing board. He didn't try to go forward with the initial ban against the courts. And so what the pardon power is, is this area of his presidency that he's discovered where he actually does have absolute power. There's not anything that anyone can do to keep him from pardoning someone. Um you know, there's there's not an institutional check on it. It's really just him. And so it's this sort of pressure release valve for his more dictatorial impulses. 
It seems like what you're saying, therefore, is the pardon power is the one thing where there are no checks. And so when there are no checks, he can do what he wants, which suggests to me that if other checks, whether they're congressional, whether they're judicial, whether they're whatever they might be, other institutions, uh, sees sort of pushing back on him in some way that he's more likely to get more dangerous. Yeah, I I think that's right. Um, And that's one of the reasons why I've been so disturbed by the failure of Republicans in Congress to push back. Um, we've, We've sort of ended up in this strange pattern where Republicans will sort of, you know, Trump will threaten to do something like remove Mueller, for example. Republicans in Congress will say, oh, well, we don't need to do anything about that because he's not actually going to do it. Right. And then Trump will take a step further and he'll motion toward doing it in a more concrete way. You know, news reports will surface that he's been talking about it. And then there's this sort of collective shudder from uh, Republican leadership in Congress where they all say, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, sure, but not that. Like, you can't go that far. And then Trump kind of gets burned and he takes a step back and he doesn't try anything. And then the whole cycle begins again. And what worries me is that the more this goes on, the more Trump becomes confident that he can, he might be able to get away with something without pushback. Because if the pushback isn't preemptive, there's nothing from stopping him doing it in the first place. And that's what I think is really dangerous. Before before you go, just um, briefly about the other cases that were decided this week, there was one about abortion and there was one about uh, union dues. And in both of them, um, Justice Kennedy uh, now retiring Justice Kennedy, was on the conservative side of the issue. Was there anything that struck, stuck out at you about either of those decisions? I mean, there. I haven't had a chance to look at them closely, and I'd be, I'd be lying if I said I had. They're both striking examples of the conservative turn on the court. Um, the public sector union case, um, Janice, is overruling uh, old President Abood. Um, and Justice Kagan wrote a very fierce dissent, essentially saying the majority has overturned this because they wanted to. <laughs> there is not a legal principle at work, um, which is language of a kind that we normally really don't see on the court. And likewise, in the um, the abortion case, we've sort of now ended up in this a bit of an absurd situation in which um, – Reproductive health clinics can be forced to provide information on crisis pregnancy centers and options other than abortion, but crisis pregnancy centers can't be forced to provide information um, about abortion and about how they are not certified as uh, reproductive health clinics. So if you take a step back, (laughs) there's a sort of obvious absurdity there. And I think it really points to, you know, the power of the court to shape life in the United States. And it is a reminder of how much it meant to have Anthony Kennedy as a potential swing vote there and how much it's going to mean now that he's gone and those cases aren't even going to be a close question. Quinta Jurassic is the managing editor of the website Lawfare. Uh, Quinta, thank you so much for uh, coming on the podcast at such short notice and discussing a bunch of things that uh, we've hardly had time to digest. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Max Jacobs. If you have an idea for a guest, you just want to let me know your thoughts. Email me at ask at slate.com. That's A-S-K at slate.com. Or you can follow me on Twitter at iChotner for more information about the show. Thanks for listening.